Good afternoon. If you would take your Bible and be turning to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. Uh, I guess I should say that you always need your Bible, right? If we're going to study God's Word for a few moments, but you may especially want it this afternoon. Uh, we're going to take a look at four different passages and, as we've said, four different names to sort of finish off and conclude this series on studying the names of God. Uh, let me just say again publicly that I'm thankful for all your kind words about the, the different lessons in this study that we've uh, gone through. I mentioned to several this morning that this morning's lesson, uh, the idea of Jehovah Jireh, was the one uh, that really kind of got me thinking about that, that name in particular. And when I realized that one of my good friends had preached on that, I thought, well, I'll listen to his version, his lesson, and see what maybe any points he brought out. And that's when I saw his series he had done and thought, well, we could take that and go through it. It's truly been a blessing for me. I hope it's been encouraging for you. Uh, and just to make mention, depending on where you look, if you were to say go to Google and type in the names of God, you might find some, some websites that will give you some good ideas or some lists. But depending on where you look, there are maybe at least seven other names that we won't uh, take time to look at in this series. Uh, similar to the one, the ones this afternoon are, are maybe somewhat like that, but especially this morning with Jira, there, there's only one place it's used. So it's not that we uh, learn a whole lot about God in that way, but at the same time, as you hopefully saw and understood this morning, uh, there is a lot just even in that passage from Genesis 22 and that name and the meaning behind that, the Lord will provide is, is so wonderful and powerful. So it's not that any of these are less important or more important, but simply uh, for the sake of time, we won't go through each particular one. So the first name we're going to talk about this afternoon is one that you have heard before, maybe from songs, but it is El Shaddai. And I, I can spell a few of these for you at least the first time, but E-L dash a lot of times, then S-H-A-D and then finished with D-A-I, El Shaddai. You're familiar with this possibly meaning almighty or all-sufficient. It's used at least 250 times in the Old Testament. We've kind of ranked these sometimes by saying that Elohim was used many times, and actually the idea of Yahweh, maybe even above that, if you count or don't count that as God's you know, particular name. Well, El Shaddai is one 250 times in the Old Testament, in one place here is in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. If you were following along this morning, this was a short section that we took a look at. It's the sign of the covenant with Abram when he is 99 years old. If you have turned there and you keep looking down, it's in verse 5 that he gets the name Abraham because God is talking about this son of promise. But it's in verse number 1 there that when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Now, again, the particular, it's a New King James, but also, you know, the particular brand of Bible that I have here has a notation to the middle that says in Hebrew that that is El Shaddai. And so that is the name here, the idea that he is almighty, that he is all sufficient. Again, let's just go, you know, kind of in our brains really quickly, but all that Abraham had been through, he's already, we're already out of chapter 12 where he has been told to move and he has moved. And all these things that have taken place uh, in these chapters, the idea of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and all these things that are coming up and leading all up to, of course, chapter 22 and the testing of his faith. But God is almighty. Now, if you're like me, I, I never knew much about this, but there was a famous song that was written. I, I didn't know, but I actually found out uh, it's as old as I am, 1982, uh, quite a good year. 
1982 was the year this song was written. It's made famous, I think, even in 1982 by the singer Amy Grant, and that's who most of us know, the version that we know, but it was written by someone else. But it was interesting as I kind of went back and looked at that again. If you're, you're like me, she says some of these Hebrew words, and you're like, well, I never understood what she was saying. The first two words of the, the chorus or the main verse are El Shaddai, El Shaddai, but the next line, the first words are El Elyon. That's one of the names that we talked about several weeks ago. But then it continues on from there. It says, Adonai, age to age, you're still the same by the power of the name. And it's a song about the name of God and understanding the power of the name of God. He is almighty. He is all-sufficient. And just as we said this morning, he's proven it time and time again. I mean, we look back sometimes at the Old Testament and we maybe set those aside and say, oh, there are all these miraculous things. Right There's the plagues and the Red Sea and, and crossing the Jordan, all these miraculous things. He doesn't work that way today. Maybe he doesn't. He's still just as powerful. He's still working among nations and among leaders and among people and among men to accomplish his will. He is El Shaddai. Number two, the second one begins with Jehovah. It's going to, the last three, by the way, are all going to be these kind of connecting names, starting with Jehovah. So number two is Jehovah. And the second part is Rapha, R-A-P-H-A, R-A-P-H-A, Jehovah Rapha. And if you want to turn in your Bible, the second passage is Exodus chapter 15, Exodus chapter 15. Jehovah Rapha means the Lord who heals. And of course, uh, Jehovah being the Lord and then Rapha meaning who heals, the Lord who heals. You may be familiar that in Exodus chapter 15, we are uh, just across the Red Sea. We're just past the ten plagues that we just referenced a moment ago. We're through the Red Sea, and most of chapter 15 is the Song of Moses, right? It's the Song of Moses and what he sings. There's even verses 20 through 21 where there's the Song of Miriam. And there's this rejoicing because of what they have seen and what has been accomplished. I mean, if you turned over there, chapter 15 and verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Can you put yourself in their, their shoes and try to imagine what you've just witnessed? You've gone miraculously. Uh, let's not take anything away from God. You've gone miraculously from literally your backs against the wall. But what's the wall? Well, it depends on how you turn. On one side, the wall is water. On the other side is the Egyptian army that's pursuing you. We call it a rock and a hard place too, right? You're stuck. And yet here God miraculously parts the water. You walk through on dry ground and here you are. And now you're on the other side. Even as we talked this morning about how the Lord will provide, you come through those trials the Lord has provided and you sing his praises. This is what Moses is in the middle of. Notice it says, Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Things are good. They don't stay that way, of course, but they are. Beginning in verse 22, so Moses brought Israel excuse me, from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Merah, or Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Merah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Verse 25, so he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them and said, 
If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And that's our phrase there, the Lord who heals, Jehovah Rapha. That's who he is. Now, we, we are, are frustrating. We're frustrated by the children of Israel. I started teaching Joshua again and, and looking at this idea that they just constantly have complained and they still will complain even though they've witnessed some of these things along the way. Here God has, they've just sung this song, but now they're complaining once again. But the bitter waters are made sweet and it is the Lord who hears. Let's th think about three things really quickly. First of all, under this point, think about the cry. Now, not only the dryness and the disappointment uh, that they faced here, but all of that is pointing towards God. They are, their cry is crying out for Him, as we should do the very same thing. Once again, those hard times, the dryness of life, the struggles, the disappointment that we face, we should turn to Him. The psalmist says it so clearly, Psalm 63 in verse 1. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. We know Psalm 42 in verse 1, even if we don't realize it sometimes, the actual scripture reference because we sing it, Psalm 42 in verse 1, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. The dryness of life, the disappointment of life, they should all point us toward depending on God, crying out for him. But notice secondly under this point here, not only is there the cry, but there's the cure. This was not Moses's idea. Moses didn't get kind of all in a tizzy and say, well, well what am I going to do? How am I going to keep everybody happy? He cries out to God. It wasn't Moses's idea to take the tree and to put it in the water and to make it sweet. It was God's idea. So we cry for him, but he is the one who has the cure, which then leads us number three to the condition. The condition here is that God expects their obedience. He expects them to obey. Notice that he showed Moses what to do in verse 25. There he made a statute and ordinance for them, and there he tested them. That's God, by the way. Verse 26, then he gives them these instructions that they would be obedient. And if they are, he would put none of the diseases on them, which he brought on the Egyptians. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before, none of these diseases. It's a fairly famous book if you're a doctor. I think Don and I have talked about it before. Uh, I had an opportunity once to do a lesson uh, on science and the Bible and the different things, prescriptions and the, the food ordinances and all these things that God gave the people. It was written by some doctors who called it none of these diseases, an amazing way in which God took care of his people. I mean, even things like pork and, and things like fish, a lot that you probably don't even you know, know about or remember about the Old Testament when it tells them, don't do this, don't do that. It's for their protection, right? Taking excrement out of the camp, not touching things if you've had touched blood. I mean, all these things to care for his people. He is the Lord who heals, but he expects their obedience. Same thing for us today. When, he comes, when it comes to the Lord who heals, he, he can heal all wounds, right? That's the beautiful part about this name, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. He can heal our physical 
problems, can he? Hey, may, may not everything. Not everyone survives cancer. Some people face horrible diagnosis or maybe they're born with a certain kind of disease or trouble and they live a few years and they pass away. Those things are unfortunate. But he can heal. We do pray for his healing physically, but we should also pray for his healing spiritually. I appreciate the congregation here, all those who have led prayer today and, and who always lead prayer. Quite often we pray for the spiritual condition of our country and our leaders, that, we, that, that they would be healed, that we would turn to Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. All right, number three is Jehovah Nisi. Jehovah Nisi, that's N-I-S-S-I, N-I-S-S-I, Jehovah Nisi. You don't have to turn far in your Bible. Go over to Exodus 17. Exodus 17, and, and as you're turning there, if you even have to turn, they've complained at the end of 15. 16, then we get the bread from heaven. <clears throat> we come to chapter 17, and they're complaining again, right? Because this is one of the instances of the water from the rock, right? The congregation, the people, there is no water in chapter 17 and verse 1 for the people to drink. So it even frustrates Moses, right? I mean, we're parents, at least in our house. We, we've been frustrated. The kids frustrate us. Then we get frustrated with each other, right? Sometimes as parents, Moses even cries out to the Lord in verse 4. What shall I do with these people? <laughs> They're ready to stone me. What is it that I'm going to do? Because the people in verse 3 thirsted and the people complained. This is one of the, not the only occasion, but one of the most frustrating occasions for me because what do they ask for <laughs> they ask for the bad situation they had I mean how how bad off do you have to be you know to complain for the worse situation I bring you out of captivity and you want to go back is that how bad it really is I'm sh I know they were thirsty it says that I'm sure they were frustrated but this is what Moses is sort of up against here and they've been complaining after they complain and there is water from the rock we come to verse number 8, and Amalek comes and fights with Israel. I hope that you remember this occasion, but it's basically that Moses calls Joshua, and they're going to go, and they're going to fight with Amalek. And Aaron and Moses and Hur, in verse number 10, go up to the top of the hill, and so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands, verse 12, became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So, of course, verse 13, Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. But the key, our key here, is verses 14 and 15, and even continuing to the end of the chapter, then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. That's what Jehovah Nisi means. And again, I have a, a connotation or a notation here to the middle of my Bible that says Yahweh Nisi, Jehovah Nisi, The Lord is my banner. That is the message of this particular occasion the lord was israel's banner under which they defeated the amalekites 
And let me just encourage you again to note in verse number 14, well, not only is there the altar in verse number 15, but in, in verse number 14, there's the mention of this memorial. And there's the mention of this book. We've got history books. We've got books that recount for us the history of this country, things that have happened. But how often do we sometimes have books about our, our family, right? Or our ancestors or our parents or our grandparents. It's been one of the great things that, that I've learned about Hannah's family in particular. Hannah's grandmother on, on her mom's side, her mom's mom, uh, Wanda, has always written things down. Just always. Not necessarily a diary, maybe not even a journal, but just always written things down. That this is what happened and this who was, is who was involved and this is who lived here and this is who is a part of our family. And it's just been her custom to do that. And so we're here now, and we're able to sit at her feet, in essence, and learn about family history or community history or all of these things because somebody took time to make mention, to write it down. What is one of the problems that Israel is going to face in the future? And it's that there arose a generation that knows not God, right? There arises a generation that does not remember now, that's not to say, I can't stand here before you today and say that, that everybody forgot or nobody did anything. There may have been pockets or a handful of people that tried to keep these things going. But how often is it that the next generation that comes along thinks they've got it all figured out and just all these old timers and old people who did things in old ways are no good anymore and we shouldn't worry about them. And we make the same mistakes that people have made before us. The idea of writing a memorial, writing a book, having an altar, as Joshua is going to cross the Jordan right with all the people, there are two instances of 12 stones, both in the river after they cross, and then they each one man from each tribe takes a stone and they make it on the other side. And what's the purpose? What meaneth these stones to you when somebody asks you? I could tell them about my parents. I can tell them about my grandparents. I can tell them how the Lord provided for me. The Lord is my banner. He should be our banner to give us strength and hope. And this is kind of similar to Jireh, but this is the one instance where it's used here in Exodus chapter 17. But we learn that it is with God that we can be successful. They are doing it in the throes of battle. They are doing it when there is bloodshed and lies on the line. But how dare we forget each and every day that the Lord should be our banner. What's the encouragement that's going to come along in Deuteronomy chapter 6? But the idea that we write it on our doorposts, that we wear it essentially on our person at all times, reminding ourselves of the great God who is Jehovah Rapha. He is our banner. All right, the last one this afternoon is going to be from Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. And as you're turning there, you would notice that this is the story of Gideon. The story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6. The last name we'll talk about is Jehovah Shalom. I know you're probably familiar with that word. S-H-A-L-O-M. Jehovah Shalom. We come to Judges chapter 6 and we meet Gideon. Gideon was called upon by God. Gideon, you're going to be the next judge in essence. The Lord is with you in verse number 12. He is told that he should be that he's going to do these things, that he's going to be with him. Verse 16, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. <clears throat> but Gideon has trouble. What does Gideon do? The same thing that everybody has done, and the same thing that you and I do from time to time. He gives excuses. Oh, but God, 
God, I've come from a poor family. My family's not worth very much. It can't be me. Oh, God, my family is the least of all the families. Why in the world would you come seeking me? I can't do it. But Gideon does say, verse number 17, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. Verse 19, so Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah flour. The meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. Verse 20, the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Hold right there for just a moment. As we think about Jehovah Shalom here, Gideon asked for a sign and what does Gideon get? He gets his sign. It's almost like a mini case of Elijah, right? You remember Elijah there as he's going to go to Mount Carmel and face the 450 prophets of Baal? What is it? We just talked about it in VBS. It's this amazing picture of this mountaintop and all of, this, all of these people and water and fire and all these things. Gideon says, I just I want a sign. He gets a little one here and that the angel of the Lord touches the meat, the sacrifice, the unleavened bread, fire arises out of the rock and consumes it. And in verse number 22, Gideon is in shock. I mean, that's just the best way to say it. Gideon perceived that he was with the angel of, was, that he was the angel of the Lord, that that's who this person was. So Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But with a statement in verse 23, God assures him, peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. So you're probably familiar with the word shalom, but Gideon builds an altar to the Lord and called the place, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Shalom. Again, you're probably familiar with it because you hear it on movies, you hear it on television. Maybe you know someone who says they're Jewish and they use that word from time to time. But here, God assures Gideon, and with such assurance from God and the angel, he builds this altar. The word shalom is, is translated as peace quite often. Maybe even the idea of secure or tranquil or at rest. Somebody also says that maybe it's a, a derivative of a word that means to be complete. That's kind of an interesting idea. To be complete. Now, the rabbin, uh, rabbinical culture, literature, claimed that the shalom of God, the, the peace of God, underlay the whole concept of peace. You can't talk about peace without talking about the peace of God, the shalom of God. So therefore, when we think about Jewish history and people using this as a greeting or a goodbye, kind of, again, through history and the rabbi's literature, whenever a person used the greeting or goodbye of shalom, one turned the statement into something sort of like a blessing, you know, I mean, we, people have even taken it, it's kind of become a, a, a buzzword or a word to use today. Somebody says, you know, peace. And we think about peace in our country and all these different ways it's been used. And it's not just something flippantly, but it's been used before as a bit of a blessing. Shalom to you, peace to you. God is the God of completeness. He is the God of peace. He is Jehovah Shalom. 
That doesn't mean there's perfection, as we said this morning. It doesn't mean that there's no trials or temptations or sicknesses or death or all of these things. But just as you can take comfort that the Lord will provide, you can take comfort that he is the God of peace. In a world full of war and a war full of, of vitriol and anger and, and all these kinds of attitudes, he is the God of peace. He is the God of completeness. And he is still there watching over all of this, even when he is disappointed in the way that mankind behaves sometimes. One final passage here. This is not a name, but look at Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and then the lesson will be yours. Exodus chapter 20. You know, the problem, I guess problem's the right way of saying it. The, the problem with the names of God sometimes with us is we said this a couple of weeks ago. I don't remember which lesson it was exactly now, if it was last Sunday or, or the couple before that. But we treat God like a vending machine. I remember using that example. We treat God and the names of God like a vending machine. That is, you know, I'll take peace today. I want the God of peace, but you know what? The God of trust, the idea that he will provide, I'll pass on that today. Or I want the God of healing. You know, I know someone in my family who is sick. I want the God of healing. Let me push that button and watch that come out instead of the God of salvation. I don't actually want to commit. I don't want to be with him. I don't want to serve him. I don't want to understand salvation, but I want healing. So that's what I'm looking for. That's the way that we treat God sometimes as just taking these bits and pieces of him as we want him. If you remember in Exodus chapter 20, of course, verses 1 through 17, the Ten Commandments. God spoke all of these words, beginning in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I don't know if you have them numbered or marked any way in your Bible, but do you remember that 1, 2, and 3, and that's actually verses 3, 4, and 7, verses 3, 4, and 7, but we would, as we number them, commandments 1, 2, and 3 deal with God's place. We emphasize that this morning because I don't think we can get through to people sometimes. I don't think we can emphasize enough that sometimes our problems are simply putting things in God's place. Why do the Ten Commandments begin with, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain? Because that is God's place, first and foremost in our lives. He is to be the one that has first place. He is to be the one that gets all the attention. And what we do is we mix it up. And we say, oh, marriage is really important, God. Uh, taking care of my family is really important. My kids are really important. And we just keep shoving things in front of God's place. And that those are idols. We begin with three things that deal with God's place, but specifically number three, verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Go back with me real quick to remember the name Yahweh. Why do we have trouble with it? Why is it that we say we don't actually know how to pronounce it? Because the Jews held it in such high regard they would not utter it. And yet we go to the exact opposite extreme many times in today's world and people utter it at every little thing under the sun. Whether they've stubbed their toe, whether they're mad at somebody, whether they're happy, sad, mad, whatever it is, they just simply utter God's name all the time and most of the time not with the reverence that it's due. God's names are important and God's place is important. And I hope that that's been encouraging to you as we have worked through these lessons. And even this afternoon, as it's been kind of short and hitting several of them, 
But hopefully that is something you can take with you as you think about all of these names. And maybe as you work through the Old Testament again, you'll pick out these times where somebody says, I'm going to call this altar or this place, whatever, Jehovah blank, fill in whatever the name might be because we learn about God. Appreciate the good attention all day and all through this series. We will conclude this lesson as we do, as is custom for us, extending heaven's invitation. It, it may be something we've talked about this morning. It may be something else, but the possibility exists that you're here and you are not a child of God, or you're here and you are a child of God, but you've been struggling with life. Maybe there's sin in your life that you'd like to make known. We're just thankful for the opportunity. There, there's no better group of people to be with. There's no better time. There's no better way to begin your week than to be sure that you're right with God, to be sure that you're in the right relationship, that you're striving to know Him. Of course, for us living in the Christian age, it's not just building altars, and it's not just these names, but it's being obedient to the gospel plan of salvation. If you need to become a Christian, we'd love to assist you. If you need to come back to him or you need the prayers of the church, we'd love to assist you even now as we stand together and ask.